0: There's a group of people in Israel who just saw the God of Israel release them. From Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 16, we see that God was working on behalf of these people the whole time. And Moses was chosen to be their leader. And if you know anything about Moses, in the beginning of his challenge from God to lead the people out of Israel he told them I don't talk well which I can say about myself right now I don't talk well but God is going to give us what he wants us to hear today so I'm going to pray for myself and for you father let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight O lord my strength and my redeemer help me ever always to speak your truth and lord help us to be hearers of the word and not doers only so you can imagine Moses had, I mean, they had seen everything. Can you imagine this? Seeing is believing for most people. And in Moses' service to the Lord, these people saw miracles. Remember, if you're like me, as soon as I read this, all I could hear was dun, dun, da-dun. And then I saw Charlton Heston. <laughs> and, and then I saw Pharaoh, who was Yul brenner. And so, no matter when I talk about Moses, and the movies are going to be coming on pretty soon—it's Easter time. All I could hear, all I could see, was Charlton standing there with that red and black robe, with that hair parting the red sea. So these folks saw Moses with the power of the Lord free them, and they're now in the desert. And I think it's appropriate they named this the desert of sin because that's what they did while they were in the (laughs) desert—they sinned. They got right, they asked forgiveness, they. And you'll see in a few minutes, they're going to do a golden calf. I mean, these guys just could not appreciate what had been done for them. But Moses, okay, Lord, if you tell me this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. And they quarreled with him and they demanded that he give them water to drink. And as I thought about this passage in the passage in John chapter four, I thought, you know what? There are two kinds of thirsts going on here, but there's one source of water for the thirst. And so the Israelites complained and they complained and they didn't know what else to do because, you know, they were ready to kill him. We're thirsty. You're not giving us what we need. Now, mind you, in chapter 16, if you read that, if you read before and after, you see that God had been providing something called the what is it for them to eat. It was manna from heaven and they ate it and they were filled Remember, some of them tried to steal some and put it away. We're always trying to put things away. We don't trust God on a day-to-day basis. And what did it do? It spoiled. But God told them, no, just trust me, because every day I'm going to feed you. Every day I'm going to give you what you need. And he did, but they still quarreled with him. They still quarreled with Moses. Now, they got God's attention, but they got it in a way that they didn't need to do that. They could have trusted Moses. They could have trusted God to give them what they needed continually, but they doubted. And when I thought about this, I thought, what example of this in my life can I think of a time when something or somebody vied for attention and they got it, but not in the way they wanted. And all I could think of was junior high. Isn't that something? All I could think of was junior high. And I could think of my classmate, Billy Brown, now, I'm a baby boomer child. I mean, I'm right in the middle of the baby boom. And that's, that's from 1946 to 1964. If you were born then, you're a baby boomer. So I'm a serious baby boomer. And I remember being, there being so many kids in my neighborhood. It was post-war, post-Korean war, post-... that They had to build schools. Now they're closing them down. But they built a junior high school. And in the city, it was rare to have a junior high school. They called them upper-grade centers. And so thousands of us flocked from our local neighborhood schools to this upper-grade center. So I'm guessing there were about 2,000 kids, and we had these cool desks. And the desks were the kind you could slide around. They were tin. They had the fake laminate on the top, and they had some grooves for your pencils, and sometimes they had a hole in them because my former desks were from the turn of the century. Heavy wood that has nothing to do with age, guys. They're from the turn of the century. They have filigree holding the top of them, iron. You remember those people? Listening? And there was a hole for ink. <laughs> wasn't it? That was cool. We used to stick all kinds of stuff in there, but it wasn't an ink <laughs> bottle. So we get these new desks, and we could slide them around, and you could change and configure the classroom any way you wanted. So big-time seventh-graders. No matter what we did or no matter how we configured those desks in Mr. Graham's classroom, my English class, I always ended up sitting in front of Billy Brown. I had long, dark, heavy braids that hung behind my back. And my concern in fooling with Billy Brown was that he was constantly messing with the braids. He would tie my hair together in the back. He would do stuff. And I wouldn't even know it. I didn't feel it. I liked school. Now, Mr. Graham was kind of a chunky Scotch-Irish guy. And he was gruff looking. And everybody was scared of him but me. And the reason I wasn't afraid of him, because I would look him dead in his eyes and I would see this mischievous twinkle. Looked like a leprechaun. <laughs> yeah. And I knew that he had a good sense of humor. So he would fuss and scream at everybody and he would say things that probably were adult, more mature humor, but I would get it. And so we got along. One day, William. Oops! I was going to change his name to protect the innocent, but it's William. He might be watching. (laughs) Decided to mess with my braids. And he took the braids, and you know how people would stick gum under the We weren't allowed to chew gum there. Now, some teachers would stand at the door and hold out their hand, but by and large, you stuck bazooka bubble gum on the back of the desk. Billy got gum in my braids. Now, my hair texture was different from a lot of the kids in my classroom, so you had to cut it if it got gum in it. And I knew my mother was going to have a hissy fit because she had to cut my braids. And before I knew it, I heard the classroom kids going, ooh. I turned around. He said, look at your hair. I flipped the braid around in there. Bazooka bubble. I know it was bazooka because that's what you bought for a penny. Two for a penny. Big wide of it. He's trying to get it out my hair, and before I knew it, I grabbed him in his shirt and looked at him and said, you have come gum in my hair, and now I have to cut it. I think I terrified that poor guy. <laughs> Mr. Graham didn't say a word. He let me flail Billy around for a little bit. <laughs> and then I realized he was watching me, and I backed away from what was gonna be eventually a big fight. And he looked at me, and he said, "Miss James, put William down. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, but he's got gum in my hair. You don't understand. I'm going to get in trouble. Miss James, go to your seat. Billy, go to your seat. On the way out of the classroom, I looked at Mr. Graham's eyes, and he, had that, he winked at me. He said, William, it looks like you got Felicia's attention, but in a way you didn't want to. Now she's never going to be your girlfriend. I didn't realize that that was what it was all about. My mind was on poetry in Mr. Graham's classroom. I didn't care about boys at that point in my life, but why that childish story? Well, it's because the way the Israelites were acting was childish. They had been delivered from a God that they knew, loved them, that provided for them, delivered them from Yule Brenner or Pharaoh and set them free. How does this relate to us? Well, in this season of Lent, we know that we've been delivered. I don't know about you. I know that God has saved me from a life of sin. He saved me from myself. He saved me from an eventual going to hell because a son died for me on the cross. And yet I'm like the Israelites in most cases. I'm complaining. I act as though God has never done a thing for me. I get mad at the drop of a hat. I don't do devotions. I don't do Bible studies. And I'm saying this because I'm saying, I don't, I mean, all of us are like this. And if you ever find yourself where God has blessed you one minute and the next minute you've turned around and act as he's never done anything for you. People leave us. We become angry with God, but we act like never, God never did anything for us because he gave that person to us. He gave that person to us for a time either to build into our lives or for us to build into their lives and for them to love on us. And then we turn around and quarrel with God. Why, God? Why did this happen? Why did you allow this? Why didn't you? And I had to learn. I'm married to a godly man. And one day, he said to us as we were going through some stuff, he said, Felicia, why not? Who are we that stuff can't happen to us? As a matter of fact, we should expect it. Well, the Israelites didn't feel that way, and God granted them they want to. They got his attention all right, but not in a way that was good for them. We skip a couple centuries. We go about 400 years, maybe between the New Testament and Old Testament, and here's another person who thirsts, but she doesn't know it. She's a Samaritan woman, and a Samaritan woman, if you know anything about Samaria, was a place that Jews went around because it was people that they called half-breeds. They were people that were mixed race. They weren't acceptable. They weren't pure. And so people went around the city to avoid them. But Jesus said, and it says before that, I need to go to Samaria. And so he made it his business to make a beeline for Samaria. I'm wondering, they said the disciples went out probably to get lunch or something, but they probably didn't want to be there either. (laughs) And they went and got something to eat, but he made a beeline for that well. And it was noon. Now, if you read about the history of how folks gathered and how they got water and refreshing for themselves, they went in the morning, in the cool of the day, or in the evening. And so all the people that she would have had contact with, who were Jewish folks, were gone. Matter of fact, it was pretty much racism. Racism. And so he came and he waited and he said, I'm thirsty. And she shows up and she's drawing water at the hottest time of the day. And I'd like to use my sanctified imagination and deduce that she's curious and she looks at him and says, why is he talking to me? Nobody talks to me. That's the reason I come at this time of day, because no one speaks to me. But this man is talking to me. Now, she had a lifestyle. And part of the other reason was not just because she was Samaritan, but she had a lifestyle that probably everybody in the town knew about. She lived with a man currently. I think she'd had five other husbands somebody says, "Uh, oh, yes, true. She had five other husbands. Some of us are trying to stick with the one we got, but she's got five. (laughs) She said five. And the woman states the obvious to Jesus as he asked her for something to drink. You know, in case you are not aware, I'm Jewish. I'm not Jewish. You're Jewish and I'm a Samaritan. Are you really asking me for water? Jesus responds in a way that only he could. He says, if you knew who I was and the gift to the world that I, I'm God, you know, is giving to everyone, you'd be asking me for a drink of water. Basically, he's saying, because I can really satisfy your deepest desire and your deepest thirst. She responded practically and slightly puzzled, sir, you don't have anything to get water with. And she's thinking you can't scoop it because the well is deep. Where can you get, where can I get this living water? How were you able to get water in a different way than Jacob could when he was at the well? After all, he built the well. And Jesus begins to tell her about herself. Now, I don't know about you. There are only a few people in my life who really have permission to tell me about myself. And they know more things about me than I want any human being to know and that I would pay them not to tell but they love me anyway. They see the deepest, the inner flaws that are in me. They see me when I'm not being completely honest. They see me when I'm shirking the truth. They see me when I'm doing things that don't please God and don't please me or them either. Jesus saw this in this woman. And God knows if she knew he could see it, it probably would have been a whole different response, but she was curious. And this is a second kind of thirst, not an attention-getting, tantrum, grown folks acting bad, acting out kind of attention. It's a, oh, what do you have? And Jesus begins to tell her about herself. I love her because if it was me, I probably wouldn't have told him anything, especially once he started talking to me. I'd have probably gathered my bucket, thinking he was in my business, and leave But Jesus compelled her to listen because he was a stranger. He didn't know who she was. And he could tell her everything about herself. And she did what was the opposite of what most of us would do. She didn't flee. What it says, she didn't fight. She stayed. If he had something that I needed that would make me whole and I would never thirst again and I would never have to come to this well again, I want to know about it it was a curious kind of thirst. And because she was so open to hear what Jesus said, we don't know exactly what he poured into her. You know, I think we get snippets of it. I would have loved to have been there when Jesus was talking to her. But he poured into her life in a way that she walked away changed. I want to say to you that we know first, the first kind of thirst was the attention-getting, tantruming, adult kind of Ugh, that we are, <laughs> where we forget, the scripture says, sometimes we go, we look at ourselves in a mirror in first Corinthians and see who we really are. And then we turn around and forget about it. We forget who we are. We forget just that moment that Christ died for us, that he loves us, that he'll forgive us. And that we can live in a way that's pleasing to him and beneficial to other people. This second kind of thirst was a curious one when she walked into a place where she normally went and her day was interrupted by a man who told her everything about herself. My challenge for both of us is as we look at these two types of thirst, that we look honestly at which one we have. Which thirst do we need filled? Which way do we need to reconcile to Jesus? Is it a shaking in our fist Is it a demanding from God that he do this for me? Like he's our divine sugar daddy. And if he doesn't, then we're not going to worship him anymore. Or is it the kind where we can go and sit at the well, meet him there, open ourselves up to a conversation with him to get in our business, to clean us up and to give us water so we'll never thirst again. What it doesn't say in the passage that we read was eventually whatever she heard and she was there for a little while, some time passes and the next thing we know, the whole village wants to know about this water. The whole village has listened, come here man who told me everything about myself. And I don't know the last time you shared the gospel with anybody or you shared even in your home with anybody about Christ's love, or even with your coworkers as you sit in the office. But we should be saying to them, I'm changed. Can you see a little bit? Come here about a man who can tell you everything about yourself. And anybody who's been through any kind of therapy or any kind of counseling or any kind of thing knows that once it's off your chest, who you really are, and you take off the mask. There was an old um, poem that we, some of us learned in high school in African-American history that said, I wear the mask that hides and grants. And when you take off that mask and you drink from the cup of the eternal living water, it's able to quench your thirst so that you never, never, never thirst again do you have to take another drink? Yeah. Daily. Do you have to take another filling up? Yeah. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. But I'm telling you that water that she got where she never thirsted again is a possibility for us. It's a believing who Jesus Christ is. It's a knowing who he is as your Savior, knowing that he can clean you up, that he can make you better, that he can cause you to deny the temptation to be grumbling and angry and tantruming to get his attention. Because you got it. You got it the day you trusted him as Savior. And really, you had it before that because he loves you. I'm here to say to you as we end that, guys, God is not holding our sins against us as we're in this Lenten season. And I remember sharing the gospel sometimes and going somewhere. And again, my husband would say, don't forget to tell them God's not holding their sins against us. And I'm saying the same thing to you. We can deny grumbling. We can deny all those other things, but we can sit at the well Be filled with water so that we never thirst again. I know that as we have been doing throughout the week, we're going to have our band come up and share a message, but I want to pray for us real quick, and I'm going to pray for us again after this is over. Lord, thank you that you have provided living water. You are living water. You are he who fills us. So that we don't have to tantrum to get your attention. We have it already because we belong to you. Help us to deny ourselves, deny our anger and trust you.